Today's episode of the Growing Pains Podcast with David Campbell on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by Entrevester. Now, this is not an advertisement, but it is a shout out to people we enjoy reading. The guest on this week's episode is Peter Marrera. He is the head writer of Entrevester alongside Carol Marrera. Entrevester provides news and data on startups in Atlanta, Canada, and as you're going to see in this episode, we really need that data. We need to know what the health of the industry is, what the movers and shakers in the space are doing, what kind of investment capital is available, what kind of mentorship is available. Peter mentions he does a lot of introducing young founders to mentors in the area, and there are so many good ones. Head to entrevestor.com. That's E-N-T-R-E-V-E-S-T-O-R.com to read more about the startup space in Atlanta, Canada. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Growing Pains podcast on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network. This is the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlanta, Canada. I'm Matt George. And I'm David Campbell. David, we haven't seen each other in a while. It's been a while. I missed your ugly mug. (laughs) A face for podcasting. (laughs) It's good we haven't gotten into video yet. So... Before we get into our special guest today, I'm excited that we continually seem to be getting fantastic guests on the podcast. We had an election. We all know how it went. We did a little bit of stuff before we went into the election. And I read something you wrote on the 14th of this month. That was, what would you call it? Was it an open letter to the victory party? You had a few thoughts on economic development going forward. Yeah, just right after the election, I had a few thoughts and I I put them down on paper and put them up on the blog. And actually, I think we're now a little over 4,000 views. So it did get quite a bit of traction uh, here in the province. Mm -hmm. You mentioned when I was reading the post, 99 to 2,000, the government spends about 2.5% total expenditure on economic development. 2020, 2021, about 1.7%. What's the discrepancy there? Is there is there a reason for that? You you have a post that starts with what? So what does it mean? So I think that basically what I've determined is the government's spending about a seventy five million dollars less on economic development now than it was twenty years ago as a share of budget, right? So if they were still spending mm-hmm. the same share of their budget, it would be about seventy five million more, which is a huge number. Um, but you know the reality is when you look at something like economic development it's not the same as healthcare or education these things have built in cost escalators salaries going up for uh, teachers etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and you also have more public demand for those services right economic development is more esoteric so what happens is these kinds of investments that aren't in the public eye like in economic development tend to erode over time until you get a government that comes in and says hey we're going to make this a huge priority and we're going to pump a lot of new money into it now i do say in the blog that it's not all about money you know if it was about money you know the the you 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 just keep pumping in more and more money and you get more and more economic growth so there's not a direct correlation between government spending on economic development but having said that i think you need to spend a reasonable amount and not necessarily uh, funding directly into firms, but on broader economic development investments uh, and activities. And that was the point that I was trying to make in that case. Then I got a response saying, you know, well, we spend a ton, we give all these companies millions of dollars every year, and what do we get for it? And so then I had to do a second uh, blog where I showed that, in fact, New Brunswick uh, spends less on subsidies, uh, according to Stats Canada, subsidies to corporations than just about every other province Mm. Uh, uh, including Alberta. So I think there's a lot of myths out there about how economic development works. And I was trying to set a little bit of that um, straight in that blog, in those two blogs. And I think what I'm trying to tell the premier and the new cabinet is, you know, you probably should invest a little more strategically in economic development around the province. Make sure you have capacity in all parts of the province to work on economic opportunities. Uh, And if they can do that, I think you have a stronger foundation for economic development. 
Yeah, and you encourage us to look at a stronger regional economic development effort. It was interesting. You talked about talking to that town, a community, that fifteen to 20,000 people, one full-time economic developer, and they spend a lot of time just trying to get money. So if you want strong regional economies around New Brunswick, you need to empower local stakeholders. That's right. So, you know, we put a lot of focus on the urban centers, Moncton, St. John, Fredericton, and we should. They're drivers of economic activity. But a proper economic development model would have capacity in place in Trachety, in Camelton, in St. Quentin, in Harvey, right? And there is some of some capacity around the province, but it's it's a mishmash. And ultimately, I would like to see the province work with its local partners to make sure uh, there's enough infrastructure and enough bodies on the ground to make sure they're pursuing opportunities, whether it's a manganese mine in, in Woodstock or a maple syrup cluster mm-hmm. in Albert County. And readers will be interested to follow up on this. You have four ideas on where to spend the David Campbell Fantasy Investment Fund of Economic <laughs> Development, and your longtime readers will be keen to know where those four buckets will be going. Let's crack right into this episode. Um, As you know, young founder in the Maritimes, I love talking about the startup space, who's doing what. Our guest today has a front row seat to many of those discussions and many of those publications. It's Peter Barrera of Entrevester. I know many of our listeners have read Entrevester. Peter, I'm tempted to read your bio, but I'd actually much rather walk through it with you. Welcome to the Growing Pains podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, Peter, um, more than 40 years in journalism, seeing as I have 28 years on this planet, it seems that I should bow to you in deference for the experience that you both have. Or ignore me altogether. Well, that's an option too, but you probably wouldn't like that. So 40 years journalism experience, Asia, Europe, North America. David gets annoyed with me because I'm always fascinated by the origin story of the guest. Why journalism? Why travel all over the world doing this work? Tell me about the origin story. Okay, I've always loved writing. And in 1978, I was really lucky. Uh, I got a summer job in um, at the Chronicle Herald. Uh, a male star on Argyle Street in Halifax. Uh, my brothers had worked there. Um, that led to summer jobs there. Uh, I've always had wanderlust, so I kept... I never finished university. I always knew there was a job at the Herald. I kept uh, coming back and leaving to travel places, etc., etc. Then... Um, you know, it's a long and sordid story, but I spent two years at uh, CP Ottawa. Um, the the uh, the recession was coming in in Canada. I wasn't really happy with what I was doing at CP. I was sort of stuck on the desk. So uh, my friend John DeMont, uh, great, great writer who's still with the Herald, uh, he had written uh, a book on Hong Kong investments in Canada, and he said to me, Go to Hong Kong, anyone can get a job there. In a year, I did. So I quit my job at Canadian Press. I went to Hong Kong. I ended up, uh, after a couple of months there, working for the South China Morning Post, the main English newspaper there, where I was covering banking in their business department. Uh, Banking is a fantastic beat for a business reporter anywhere. So I covered that. Then I left to move to Seoul, I uh, got married, uh, had a child. Uh, Seoul didn't quite agree with us, so uh, we moved back to Hong Kong. I was working for an American news service called Knight Ritter Financial News. Uh, Knight Ritter owned the um, they owned the uh, uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, the Miami Herald, other papers like that. The chain is no longer there, unfortunately. Uh, that grew stale. After a few years, we wanted to move closer to home. My wife's English, so I got a job with Bloomberg in London as their banking reporter. Uh, there I was covering, I, I ended up covering um, the, in, you know, the, the financial sector, which is 20% of the FTSE index. Uh, so um, I spent four years with Bloomberg, 
transferred to a company called The Deal out of New York. They were the Bible in the first decade of of this century for M&A in the U.S. and uh, corporate finance. Uh, Transferred with them over to North America covering U.S. finance out of, uh, I I was based in Halifax. Uh, They let me work remotely. That lasted till the wake of the Great Recession, and uh, then I started Entrevestor in uh, in 2011, and here I am. When you when you went to Hong Kong, why was it so easy for you to fit right in immediately? Is it, was it because the the business language in Hong Kong was English? The business language is definitely English. There, you know, there are two. English language, or at least this was 1990. There were then two uh, two English language publications, the Standard and the, uh, the the Post. It was fairly easy to get on with the Post and really easy to get on with the Standard. Uh, by this time, I'd been a journalist for 10 years, which is more experience than a lot of the people showing up there had, and I'd completed the Canadian Securities course. Which meant that I, you know, I had a, I had started covering publicly listed companies, and so I landed in Hong Kong on a Monday, and by Friday I was I'd been hired on by by the Standard, and that meant that I could get my papers and uh, and you know live there. Uh, so I, I was settled, and then from then three months later I was hired by the Post. Was it also because of a growing Western? interest in China's growth? That was certainly growing at the time. I missed the the handover of Hong Kong to China in 97. By that time, we were back in England. Hmm. But what I did see is Hong Kong move from being a British colony to a Chinese colony. Nobody likes those terms, but that is, in essence, what happened. Uh, In the the lead up to the the handover, there was a, a huge change. Uh, all the, the companies that were hiring wanted Mandarin as well as Cantonese. Uh, links to China were important. Listed companies from China were appearing on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. The biggest story I covered while I was there as a, a banking reporter was the HSBC uh, takeover of, um, of Midland Bank in the UK. And uh, that was an important story, not just from economics, but also in terms of of the the makeup of of Hong Kong society, because the you know the 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 chairman of HSBC was he had a position on on the local government. It was just enshrined in the system. Then he was the chairman of the jockey club at the uh, at the, the the Hong Kong racetrack, which is in the Hong Kong society a really important position. Mm-hmm. And as a reporter for the main English paper, I covered not only the business side of it, but also what this meant to to the, the makeup of Hong Kong uh, in, in the expat community. Absolutely fascinating time of my life. It was just a golden time. Easier to be there as a bachelor than as a father of one, though. <laughs> yeah, sure. Dave, you want to hop in? Yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about Peter's current business model because I think it's yeah. important and I don't think that, that people really understand this. So Peter has actually made a business model, a viable one, given that he's been in business for many years, collecting and reporting on the startup scene in Atlantic Canada. So this is a, a very valuable service for us in the region. We don't have a lot of good data like this on other sectors. Imagine if we had a Peter Marrera for tourism or for manufacturing or for the fishery sector uh, or natural resources. And we don't have that. So we rely on Stats Canada information, which is um, somewhat choppy and somewhat lagged. So Mm -hmm. what Peter does for the startup scene in general is an incredibly important service. And he's found a way to make money doing it. So we get these very good stories on the startup scene. We get great data every year on investment levels, on the growth of the sector, on employment in the sector all around the region. Uh, and he's found a way to make money doing it. So I applaud him for that. And hopefully we'll go through some of his data uh, today. Yeah, Peter, we want to dig into to the, the beginnings of Entrevestor and how it's become a sustainable outfit. Maybe just before we do, there, do that to tie a bow on some of the things you've written, I was really interested to talk about your book, Backwater. 
Um, I haven't read the book, but I know Dave will be will be tuned into a lot of what you wrote about. Is published in two thousand and nine. The subtitle is Nova Scotia's Economic Decline. What was the what was the thesis behind doing the book, and and why in two thousand nine? Um, when I moved back to Nova Scotia in two thousand and three, I was doing freelance reporting for different people. I was a local stringer for the. Uh, uh, Globe and Mail ROB. I did a lot of work for Progress Magazine. And uh, I, there was just a, a lack of the private sector in Nova Scotia and, and the Maritimes, Atlantic Canada, really. Um, there was too much government spending. Um, there was a lack of immigration. The, the metrics were not healthy at all. And so much of the reporting uh, was really uh, promotion. Um, so I took a look at it. I pitched the book. Uh, Nimbus agreed to take it as long as it was merit. They wanted something that looked at the Maritimes, not just Nova Scotia. Now, it focused mainly on Nova Scotia. One thing that I did say in the book, uh, you know, you could miss it if you read it too quickly, is there's some interesting things going on with startups and there's some good, uh, good programs going on at places like Innovacorp. And, uh, so the book came out, it got a lot of, of interest. I do believe it was a forerunner to Ray Ivening's report several years later, uh, which I, uh, had a, I authored a, a section in it on startups. Um, just, Moving, that was 2009. 2010, I lost my job with the deal in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in New York. I needed something to do. So I lined up three you know, gigs with three different companies doing PR for them, whatever. And I decided on the side, I'd have this side hustle called Entrevestor, which uh, New Brand, uh, Nova Scotia Business Inc. suggested, a new website with news on, uh, on startups. And I said, great, but it's, it's got to be... Atlantic Canadian. It can't be just Nova Scotian. And they said, okay, got a few sponsors for it. The three jobs all fell through. So all I had was Entrevestor, which was mm -hmm. paying me. I had four sponsors for it, each of them kicking in some money, but you know, not enough to live on. My mm -hmm. wife and I were, were looking at moving to Alberta. And then in the summer of 2012, Things started to, to, to click with it. I started to get interested in provinces other than New, other than Nova Scotia. Um, I started to, to figure out ways that I could make money out of it. The readership was growing. And what really made the difference is when we started to collect and analyze data on the startups. And as a journalist, I find this is really important because uh, the ethos in journalism is really that, well, all, you know, the, we've got a perpetual crisis in this industry. And so everybody should be figuring out how to, you know, do things like Entrevestor where you're, you're, you're your own publisher, where you put out news and people read it. But, but how do you make money out of it? Well, you make advertising, you sell advertising. Everybody who says that has probably never sold an ad. And there's two things about journalists selling advertisements. One is it skews your objectivity as a journalist. I wish it didn't, but it does. I try to you know, have church and state, but I cannot help it. The second thing is, is journalists suck at selling ads. Because if you're selling an ad, you believe in the power of advertising to shape people's opinions and their actions. And as a journalist, you've got an ingrained cynicism or skepticism that would suggest that advertising doesn't do that. Or it, what the, the people have minds that can distinguish between what's promotion and what's what's actual. So it's it's not a good way to, to, to finance this. But Getting data and analyzing data on a key sector like startups, there is people with budget who find they need this, this information. There's the old chestnut that you, you, can't, you can't 
uh, you, you can't manage what you can't measure. So policymakers are excited about the startup space. They should be. It's, it's, it's real. But they need the data to prove that. And so if you're uh, um, you know, uh, a public, pub, public sector VC company backing startups, you want the data to show the, the politicians and the, the, the government bureaucrats that this is for real. There are jobs being created. There's investment coming into the, to the region. And we have done that. We sell that data. ACOA has been a fantastic partner in terms of of um, allowing us to, to provide that data for everybody. And it strengthens the ecosystem while we monitor the ecosystem. Now, I've run on a lot. <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly what this medium is for, Peter. Um, who uses the data? I'm really interested in this because you're collecting data, you're analyzing it, and you're putting it out to the world. I know David does a lot of StatsCan data and parlays it into his blog model that he's been using successfully for a long time. But who should be interested in this stuff? Because I think it's really cool. I think anyone who's interested in the innovation space in Atlantic Canada should be reading it. I think anyone who's interested in economic development in the region should take at least a passing interest in it. Because the the financial power of innovation-driven companies is profound. They are hiring and, and they're hiring young people, which we desperately need in Atlantic Canada. They are, you know, the, the research that we've done in previous years has shown that 90% of the revenues of these companies comes from outside the region. So it's, it's, it's an export model. It's relatively small in terms of, you know, government support. It's, you know, not like uh, a big announcement of a multinational coming here and uh, or, um, you know, we're going to build uh, a certain building and the government will will guarantee X million in in uh, in backing for it. There is a, a strong government component, but compared with the revenue that these companies is uh, are, are producing, it's it's not not really uh, really that much. Um, I would hope that one of the four areas that David has suggested for the New Brunswick government, I hope some of it at least uh, includes a startup space. No, it, sorry, it absolutely does. I think that's a fundamental I- issue. And the other thing about Entrevestor, Peter's data here, is nobody else provides it. Mm. It's a very unique service. So you've got other folks tracking venture capital there's other folks tracking stats canada tracks various kinds of data but nobody gets at the data that peter has or has the knowledge of individual startups that he has and built up over the years so i think that it's a very unique model and like i said i would love to see if we could apply it in other important i I agree with you david and I don't understand why traditional newspapers, local newspapers, don't do this. Because the, the, the income that a publication can make from analyzing, analyzing a segment of the population, you mentioned resources. What if you had a resource reporter? Okay, you paid this person, you know, a, a, a decent salary for a journalist and he or she would produce daily stories on resources in, in New Brunswick, in Nova Scotia, wherever. But at the same time, this person is responsible for gathering data and producing a report each year on the resource sector, uh, fisheries, forestry, mining, uh, call it what you will. There would be a market for that that would cover that reporter's salary. And you could have four, a team of four or five people in a mid-sized newspaper, and it would bring revenues into the company. It would also help local businesses because, you know, what if you have somebody covering biz, uh, retail uh, for, for the region, really? I cannot believe that uh, the the, the re- people in the retail sector would not want that data and benefit from it. But that's the difference between you and, say, Huddle or even traditional newspapers like the the Herald or or the, let's say the Daily Gleaner, 
they will publish stories on specific firms or industries, but you start foundationally with the data. And that's the, that's what you, you uh, the foundation for all of your work. And I think that's what we need in these other sectors. And we don't get that. And I actually try to pivot all my stuff off of core data. And I think that really is missing for many of the sectors in Atlanta, Canada, that's missing these days. I would agree with you. And, you know, um, you, you take the, uh, you, you view it through the prism of an economist. I look at it as a journalist who, who really loves his trade. I love the, the culture of it. Um, and it is a solution to get more people employed and, and benefiting their communities. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, I think that, sorry, one, one other thing, sure. though, because I think some are, would argue that it's advocacy journalism, right? That you're basically telling the good news stories about an industry. And I think there's some of that, although I read your stuff and you're equally, if, if numbers are trending down and so on, you're, you, you share those numbers widely and openly. But I, I still don't understand what the problem is telling the stories of successful companies, right? Why is that somehow any different than, you know, telling the story of a negative company or a negative story? I see myself as being the like an old time small town community newspaper. I cover a community. The community is the startup community in in Atlantic Canada, broad geographic expanse, but the same you know number of people. And the publisher of local newspapers always had to and have to contend with the the, the, the problem of well, here's some bad news. Some people won't like it. I've got to report it. And so I manage that. Uh, Case in point, it's not a story I enjoyed covering, but we broke the story of the lawsuit against First Angel Network and NBIF uh, in 2018. CBC covered it about a week after we had it. I contacted those people and I said, I'm going to be covering this story. I'm sorry. Um, You know, it's important that it be known. They understood. I asked them for comment. I put their comments in. And um, it, NBIF and I still have a business relationship. We had it. We maintained it throughout. Do I take a kinder, gentler view of the startup community? Yeah, I do. Um, you're always going to have journalists who are you know, have sunnier dispositions than others. Uh, Some of them very good. Um, Mike Duffy was a fantastic journalist. Really, really fantastic. Mike Duffy made no secret of the fact that he would, you know, attract more flies with honey than vinegar. And he believed that just simple, you know, common decency is a good way to, to, to conduct yourself as a journalist. And there's there's that as well. The other thing, David, is just, you know, painted in broad brush strokes. This is a good news story, and it has been for eight years. I think it's in some trouble right now with funding, which I hope we'll, we'll discuss in a little while. Um, but my God, this has been just a success story writ large. Mm. Peter, can we can we blow it up for a minute and talk about the startup sector in general? There's so many things I don't want to miss, but let's just let this go where it goes so we make sure we cover everything. I'm fascinated by the space, but I'm also fascinated in how we benchmark the time right now and what metrics we use to compare it to either the future going forward or the the past looking backward. I feel that, how should I say this? Some people criticize me for being a little bit um, negative on the region. Let's let's not get it twisted. I love this part of the world, but I am interested in things like our fascination with the past and our brick buildings and and our big success stories of the McCain's and the Irvings. And that's all excellent. We talked to Donald Savoie about all that amazing history. But looking forward, what's the current health of the startup space and how do we benchmark it? How do we do we do we do it by how much has been invested in these companies? Do we do it by how many new companies incorporate every year? How do we benchmark the health of the startup space via the data that you're collecting and the stories you're telling? 
Okay, I don't think there's a single benchmark. There's not one number like the score of a hockey game. Yeah. Um, let me just run through some basic numbers. Number of startups is a big one. We, uh, we define a startup, by the way, as a company that's commercializing technology. Uh, they are producing a product for the global marketplace, and they are locally owned. So uh, when we talk about startups, it's not a, a web development consultancy. It's not a local branch of a, a multinational. It's companies like Resin Conduct, uh, companies that have been started by the two kids in a garage sort of thing or a university researcher. And they're growing here. There's a million gray areas. But last year, we put a number on it, 697 of these companies as of December 31st. That's about 23% growth from the previous year, which is the strongest growth we'd ever seen. Usually, it's about 15%. So the, the number of companies. There's the number of people that these companies employ. And through LinkedIn, through interviews, we conduct roughly 200 interviews a year. So we get a pretty good, pretty good idea of, of what's going on with the companies. Uh, we estimated that there were about 6,500 people working directly for these companies at the end of last year. That was up by 1,000 people from the previous year. Mm -hmm. uh, Patrick Hankinson from um, uh, uh, Concrete Ventures does a good job of tracking uh, the direction of job growth using LinkedIn data. I try to dive a bit deeper than LinkedIn because uh, one thing I noticed is uh, last year, Stephen Harper's LinkedIn profile said that he was prime minister of Canada. <laughs> so you can't trust all of them. Right? Maybe he thinks he is. <laughs> Could be. Um, so that, that's jobs. Funding is an important one. And what we try to do is not just do the VC deals, but do all deals. We will never track all the funding. You just There's just too many people flying below the radar. Uh, the, the numbers last year were skewed by the massive Verifin deal, uh, $515 million. And so if you strip that out, then things were down a little bit last year, which is troubling. We also looked at angel funding. And angel funding, so funding... Equity funding from wealthy individuals dropped from 29.4 million in 2018 down to 21.4 million last year. I'm sorry, 21.9 million last year. That's really worrying because we need to be building up this next generation of companies that are going to succeed. That eight million bucks, Peter, roughly. Do do you do we think that went somewhere else or just wasn't spent? It just wasn't invested. You know, like uh, these companies are out all the time uh, trying to get people, whoever, you know, whether it's NBIF or uh, the um, Killick in Newfoundland or or whoever to invest in them. And the the way these these people operate, most of them, you know, around your age, Matt, it's just phenomenal to watch. Mm -hmm. And um yeah, they just didn't have as much success as they, they'd had the year before. And this year they'll have, they'll very likely have less years, less success still. Uh, so um, just one carrying on. The other thing that we track is revenues and yep. it's the hardest information to get. And we never get the same companies reporting their revenue year after year. So they well, just have to divulge that to you on their own accord? On their own, complete privacy we get about uh, a quarter of the, the the community giving us some sort of revenue. Now, a lot of them are pre-revenue, so they don't mind telling us, look, we're not in the market yet. But what we're seeing in the last three years, each of the last three years, the, the, the revenue growth of the companies overall has been above 70%. And where it's really growing strongly is not the company's that get revenue for the first time skewing the, the, the data. It's in the companies that have found a market for their product and their sales are going from 1 million to 2 million in a, in a single year. And there are, you know, 50 to 90 companies that have revenue of over, over half a million dollars and they're doubling it each year, you know, in broad terms. And 
those companies by and large are going to be unaffected by the pandemic because they're they're life sciences companies or SaaS companies. They they they've got sales channels that will not necessarily be reliant on on you know the airplane industry or the car industry or selling through retail. It, it's it's looking there's the the big companies continue to have thrived. Mm-hmm. There's a Good summary, Peter, on your website, introvestor.com forward slash AC forward slash data slash or dash report. So you can go there. You can see it. It's all of that summary information. It's historical, shows the track trend over time. So I, I will put a link up to that uh, in the summary. But I did want to ask you about the female-led startups because in your little infographic, you have 14% are female-led and then you have an exclamation point. And I wasn't sure if that was an exclamation point because that's bad or an exclamation point because that's good. Because, of course, I've tracked uh, self-employment in the IT sector as one example. uh, And female-owned companies from Stats Canada data is closer to 30 or 35 percent. So it seems to me that 14 percent is very low. So is that exclamation point mean we're heading in the right direction or is it a concern to you or... What does 14% female-led mean? Well, I didn't know I'd used an, an exclamation point, and I never do. I'm wondering if the exclamation point is near a colon or something like that. <laughs> um, I think exclamation points should be left to Archie Comics. Um, Maybe it just came out of you, Peter, just the raw uh, emotion we, of that can we Can we put this on hold? i got to go edit that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Um, so 14% is up from 8% five years earlier. Mm-hmm. And it's not a good number, but it's, it shows improvement. The direction of travel is good. So that's your point. Yeah, that okay. is the point. Um, women do not have the presence in IT that men do. And there are all types of great programs. Uh, you know, big shout out to the Dalhousie University Faculty of Computer Science and what they're doing in that. Um the, the, the place where it's really making progress is in life sciences, not just in the, the founders and the, the C-level people, but in terms of employment, like IMV, which is one of the larger life sciences companies. I think 60%, 60 to 70% of their staff is female, and it extends right up to the C-suite. Uh, there are a lot of women in, in biology, in, you know, going through biology programs in universities and they're, they're getting jobs in these companies. Yeah. I think that's one of the keys, Peter, is the, is the graduating classes coming out, choosing technology. Now I'm doing a podcast with tech impact with the CEO there, Kathy. Kathy. Exactly right. Yeah. We're talking to a lot of these really spunky, smart female grads coming Mm -hmm. out in diverse, even if it's sales or business development, choosing tech. I think that's an excellent trend for us as a region. Definitely. And one thing that's healthy is so many of the uh, organizations, the support organizations are now uh, being led by women. Uh, I met for the first time yesterday with uh, Danielle Graham from uh, Sandpiper Fund, which is going to be Mm -hmm. launching soon. Uh, Cove, Propel, the innovation pro, uh, initiative at, uh, at Memorial University, um, you know, and you've got people like Michelle Sims and Karina LeBlanc, Michelle Sims at Genesis in Newfoundland and Karina LeBlanc at uh, the Pont de Spande Institute in, in Fredericton doing great work. There, are, There's no shortage of role models. There's no shortage of, of leaders who understand the challenges that women face. And as the father of a, a female founder, I, I do understand that women do face additional challenges uh, in, in getting companies going. Peter, can we talk a little bit about, we've made a habit on this podcast about being pretty honest and transparent about what our challenges are. Dave and I on the Turning Point podcast with the New Brunswick Business Council talked to Jeff White and Dorenda Shukla, and I know you know them both. Yeah. We asked them, we asked them, what barriers do we need to remove for the startup game to get to improve or for more people to choose the path of entrepreneurship? And we can talk about the culture of entrepreneurship at the end. I'd love to do that for a minute with you. But 
We talked to Jeff and Durendra about what the barriers are, what our challenges are. And Jeff said funding's a big one, yeah. which you mentioned. And Durendra very appropriately said, we need to look at reducing the student debt burden or the appetite for risk of our grads is just naturally going to be lower. And we're going to default to the nine to five funding and lowering the student debt burden. Those are really two interesting barriers on how to improve this sector. What are some others that you see or just hone in on those if you want? Durandra's comment is really interesting. And uh, I, you know, I'm student debt is just a, you know, dreadful, dreadful thing. And I think people of my generation need to pay more attention to that problem. Uh, One thing I'll say about Entrevestor is that we have had an intern each year. I don't think we had one the first two years, but ever since then, we always pay our interns for the articles they do. They get, we're, we're really big on mentorship. And I, the guy that we had as our uh, summer student graduates, uh, he graduates in the in uh, in the spring, and I'm hoping to bring him on as a reporter. But uh, yeah, I think that there's a collective responsibility that all businesses have to to pay to pay students who work for them and to to help ease that that burden. Let's look at. At funding, the particular pain point right now is early stage funding. So one thing that we did, it doesn't appear in the report um, that I just put, put out, but I've done subsequent research and it'll be in an article that we're doing uh, that'll be out uh, on September 30th, is the, the, the bracket of funding between 20,000 raises, I'm sorry, companies raising 20,000 to 500,000 in a round of funding. So let's call that early stage funding. There were about 12% of companies in 2018 that had uh, had that, that had one of those early funding rounds. Last year, it was down to 8% of companies. So the, the percentage of companies in the community that are raising early stage financing fell last year and it will probably fall again this year. And that's a particular problem because we need to to get capital into these early stage fund companies to, you know, to produce the next risk and the next uh, uh, Gemba software, et cetera. But where does that investment come from? So Francis McGuire is famous for saying that uh, investors should only put 5% of their assets, of their investable money into startups or anything high risk. Well, you have to have a million dollars in investable assets to get 50,000, right? And so if you look around the region, there's not that many millionaires or multimillionaires that have the kind of capital laying around to invest 20, 50, 100,000 in small firms. So I think government has tried to come into that space maybe more than in other provinces, I'm not sure. But I still think that's a real challenge is where do you so you have the on the top end, it's very hard to get 10 million, but at least, you know, you have to mostly go out of the region to get that. You have to go to Toronto or California or somewhere else, Boston. But that first level of angel capital, the 20, the 50, the 100, the 200, I, I you know, I, I'm concerned that there's just not enough investors over the years. As you know, Peter, there's been the government has tried to find ways to pool those angel investors in the region. Um, but I'm worried that there's not going to be enough source capital for those early stage companies from private investors and that either government might have to step in or maybe a more aggressive tax incentive because I know New Brunswick uh, uh, increased its tax incentive to try and get uh, invested, limit the risk to investors. But I'd be curious to know your thoughts about where that money comes from and, and how do we make sure there's a, enough of that early stage capital to fund a growing startup scene. Okay, the the incentives I believe are the key. Now, the what you just described is actually worse the, than it appears on the surface, uh, David, because the the angel tax credits. You know, they have a different name in every province and every state as well in the U.S. Uh, let's call them angel tax credits. So I invest. 
uh, $50,000 in a Nova Scotian company, I can then claim uh, a 17.5% tax credit uh, on my next tax return. It's a great program. But the company has to be in Nova Scotia and the investor has to be in Nova Scotia. So you're looking at an extremely small pool of investors that any Nova Scotian company can, can, can seek. It's even more pronounced in New Brunswick, even though New Brunswick has, the, are, without a doubt, the most generous program in the country. But there's just so few people who can or should be investing in these sorts of companies. Uh, the worst thing that can happen, I think, in this is that we, we get into a fad of people who cannot afford it using these tax credits to invest in companies that they'll never get their money back out of. And I think that we've got to make sure for ethical reasons that that doesn't happen. The solution is to look at what's happened in Minnesota or Arkansas. In, in Minnesota, if I took that 50,000 we just mentioned and I invested in a company in Minnesota, I would then file a tax return in Minnesota in the subsequent tax year. They would say, oh, you didn't have any income in Minnesota, so all of your tax credit you get back as a check from the Minnesota government. Now, talking to people within government, they say that'll never happen. We're never going to get into a position where our government writes checks to multi-gazillionaires living elsewhere because they've invested in a local company. But it's direct inbound investment into our, into our, our province, into our region. It has very little bureaucracy involved. There, we don't have to pay people to do it. In fact, what it means is that we have this fantastic sales team in the founders in the region going out around the world to get investment into the companies. And for every dollar of investment that the, the, the provincial treasuries surrender, there's probably two or three dollars of direct investment. Uh, not only that, but there have been studies to indicate that invest, investment in ta, into high growth companies like this results in, in payroll taxes, income taxes by the, the, the employees of these companies that greatly offset any, any government or any revenue that governments lose. Yeah, I think, I think, Peter, governments are skeptical of that indirect effect, but I think that's exactly the point. If I get if the investor in Arkansas gets a fifteen thousand dollar check from the Arkansas government, but if that investment has supported, uh, you know, five jobs or three jobs mm -hmm. in Arkansas, the taxes from those jobs is going to be greater than the tax incentive. So I think maybe we just need to do a better job of showing that data or explaining that data to government so that they can say, no, 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 we get yes, we gave you know, fat cat investor, 15,000, but we got 45,000 in tax revenue. Yeah, there needs to be, and I think it would be an excellent project for someone like APEC to, to do a study of the, the fiscal, the, the fiscal impact of, um, of these sorts of programs. Um, the other thing is the federal government is being lobbied hard to have a federal uh, angel tax credit. Uh, there was sort of a murmuring about it in the three, in the in the, the the throne speech, but I I don't I don't know. Let me just add one more thing, David. Coming back to your point about economic development, this would be the best the best tool I can think of in terms of economic uh, economic development for governments to spend their money on. Uh, it is proven to have worked. It's you know that there's that there's a demand there for this type of program, and you know that these are companies that can that can thrive in the current economic environment. They are, according to, to Patrick Hankinson, they're adding jobs right now, and I can think of no better way for governments to spend their economic development money. 
governments just don't they they resist giving money to fat cats so there's always this famous story of uh, leonardo dicaprio getting a tax incentive to buy a tesla and this thing was sent all around the you know a few years ago around social media because he's eligible for it as much as anybody else right if in california if you bought a tesla you got ten thousand dollar tax credit yeah so i think they are a little bit nervous of giving money to fat cats but i think you're right if you look at the bigger picture and if you're able to explain this to the public it would make a lot of sense the national the idea of a federal tax credit is even better because i can be in one province and and fund angel investments in another province but my because my it's coming off my federal tax it doesn't matter where i am in canada uh so that might be a a a better way to do that but it's always risk that they don't even want to do it within the bubble right because jerry pond and others have been arguing for a, a tax reciprocal agreement in Atlanta, Canada to do that, right? So that he can invest in Nova Scotia companies and somebody in PEI can invest in a Brunswick company and they can't do that Jerry's right now. Ar- because Jerry's been arguing it. loudly for it as only Jerry can. <laughs> Guys, there's two things that I don't want to miss. And Peter, we're, we're aware of your time. You've already been very, very generous. Um, we get lost in having fun on this podcast. So we know people have things to do, but there are two things that I, that I want to hit for sure, before we before we close, I love the discussion around NBTEL as a young person because it has been a place that has spawned so many of these role models, as you say, for the startup game and for the new wave of entrepreneurs. I believe, based on the people we've spoken to, that the health of the amount of role models that are able and willing in the region, in the Atlantic region in general, is fantastic. Are are companies able to access people that we know like the Alstons and the Lebruns and the Dan Duarons and the Roxanne Fairweathers? Is the health of the role model, um, is the health of how many role models and the qual- quality of those role models in the region positive in your mind? Well, when we say the term role model, it's really individuals. Mm. Let's look at the structure of organizations. And I think that one of the differences of for the region coming out of the last recession and coming out of this recession, um, there's an ecosystem that exists A, for innovation-driven entrepreneurs, but I think it also reflects all entrepreneurs. Um, that ecosystem wasn't there 11 years ago, and it is profound right now. In every, you know, I, I charge seven cities, um, two in Nova Scotia, three in New Brunswick, one, one each in, in PEI in Newfoundland. In those seven cities, every single city other than St. John, sadly, has uh, an innovation hub that offers programming, office space. In most pay- cases, there's some some capital that can be provided so that if you, the young person that you just referred to has an idea, they can go to these places and find the, the help they need. Uh, usually, they can link up with those role models. You know, the, they don't get along with the first two, but then they meet the third and and, and that works. Um, the, the, these role models, advisors, they, they come in, in places you wouldn't expect. Uh, you know, there's a, a few young people that I've sort of worked with fairly closely. Um, I, I'm an old, old school journalist, but I can still, you know, I've got enough awareness that I can help them out a bit. Um, uh, you've got... Um, you know, I know of a young entrepreneur and, and her, you know, her go-to advisor really is her, her case officer at, uh, at IRAP, at the, at the NRC. They've got some fantastic people there. Mm. Um, the answer to your question, Matt, is yes. There's also a real willingness. I spend a lot of time doing introductions. You know, um, 
I sit down, I interview a, an entrepreneur, I say, oh, you should meet so-and-so. Or sometimes it's just a, a university student who, who contacts me and says, you know, can I, can I meet for a coffee? I've never once had, uh, an, uh, you know, uh, an experienced person who I was introducing someone to say, look, don't bother me with that. 100% success rate of people trying to, to help out. There's a realization that we're sort of in survival mode in Atlantic Canada, and we've all got to help each other out. Jerry Pond refers, compares it to an, an, an Amish barn raising, that you help your neighbor build his barn this spring, and um, you know they'll help you out the, the next time around. And that is really one of the strengths of this region. So, I, I just, speaking of ecosystem, though, what, I wanted to ask you about Propel quickly. So, Propel has merged or evolved over the years from uh, uh, support in St. John for tech startups to New Brunswick for tech startups to an online model now under Barry Beeston. Now that Barry is leaving, what do you think the role is? Where does where does Propel fit in that ecosystem when you've got Volta, you've got other You've got Planet Hatch. You've got, and I think, Matt, there's even a new one in St. John. I think I read that this week, that they've just launched an incubator in St. John. That's right. So what's the role for, yeah, what's the role for Propel moving forward under the new leadership? Okay, I have not sat down with with Catherine yet to, you know, uh, have a chinwag, but um, Propel... I really like what Barry did with the virtual programs because we think of Atlantic Canada as a small space, right? Atlantic Canada, excluding Labrador, is a landmass larger than Britain, I'm sorry, France and Germany put together. Uh, The transportation connections are not great. If you live in Fredericton, I think you can fly or drive to Toronto quicker than you can fly or drive to, to St. John's. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's really hard. And four, five, six months of the year, the travel really sucks. So the virtual uh, role is important. What I think Propel really has to overcome right now is the benefit of a cohort-based um, accelerator is you're hanging out with people doing the same thing you are. And so you go for for lunch one day and you just get to know another entrepreneur or a group of entrepreneurs, or somebody comes in and says, gosh, I have trouble with my um, digital marketing person because they're, you know, they, 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 they don't know how to do this. And somebody says, Oh, well, we can do that for you. Um, You don't, get that clubhouse effect, if you will, in, in virtual programs. And I think that is important. So if, if the virtual program of Propel can meld with the, the, the physical base of the startup hubs in, in various cities, then I think that would be, that would be great. ACO has done a really good job of getting what they call the, the, if I got the initials right, BAIs, business accelerators and incubators, mm. getting them to, to to talk with each other, to collaborate. Um, uh, so those groups working with Propel, I think, is a is a good um, a good uh, focus. The other thing I'd like to see Propel do is work more closely with life sciences organizations. Uh, I, I know, you know, its name originally was Propel ICT, uh, but the, the sector that's on fire, and this predates the pandemic, the, the sector that's really on fire right now is life sciences. And it can't just be Halifax and Charlottetown. It's got to be the whole region. Peter, when you talk about the life sciences sector, it feeds directly into my last question, and then we'll see if we can wrap it up here. Um the biosciences sector in PEI is not only impressive, but incredibly diverse. What is going to be the role going forward of immigration in the startup space? Because it seems to me like it's going to be critical 
in the next decade to getting really good founders. Maybe it's an MBA student that graduates and stays that starts the next company. Regardless of who it is, the biosciences sector in PEI is an example of how diverse you can get in a founder pool. So do we need that going forward? Diversity is really important in this space uh, for several reasons, not the least of which is it's a young, socially conscious um, employment pool, and the the employees insist on diversity and uh, and social impact for the companies that they work for. So let me talk about a, a few things. Um, you know, the PEI uh, group is, is important. That would stretch everywhere. About twenty percent, I'd say, of the founders are immigrants. Um, and immigration, I think, is becoming an Atlantic Canadian success story. And I would believe that it will, the pandemic, you know, it's, we're in a trough right now, but I think going forward, that's going to increase. Where the startup community really has to focus, and it's really hard to, <clears throat> to, to, to articulate this, is not so much in the immigrant community because the immigrants who enter the startup community or start businesses, they, they tend to do really well. They, we, the, the startup community is welcoming, it's open-minded, et cetera. Where huge gains are needed is in bringing identifiable groups of minorities that whose members were born and raised in Atlantic Canada into the startup community. And I'm speaking mainly of Indigenous people and of African Canadians who were born and raised in Atlantic Canada. And if you look at just, you know, African Canadians as a group, there are some real, real, you know, people who've done who are, are doing very well. If you look at African Canadians who were born and raised here, there's it's there just aren't enough. It's one or two, three percent of founders, something like that. And that is a situation that, that needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed. I, I was going to say quickly, it's not going to be a quick evolution, but bringing more people in to understand the opportunities and uh, and helping them along. I know we're at the end here, but I do have to ask one more question, if if our illustrious hosts will allow that, Matt. <laughs> um, I name, to ask your about, name's on the bench. That's right. There you go. If I'm on the banner, uh, I get the last question. No. Um, I wanted to ask you about Verifin, because I think that went a little bit below the radar in the rest of Atlantic Canada. But Gordon Pitts, we had Gordon on last week, uh, uh, talking about his new book on startups in uh, and two startups in specific in New Brunswick, but he was saying that Verifin was probably the largest exit in the history uh, of the region um, for the amount of money that stayed in the region. So Q1 Labs was larger nominally, but apparently most of the big investors were not located here, whereas Verifin. It was a private equity investment right into the firm. So I'd like, number one, I'd like you to comment on that. And I'd like you to agree with me that Ocean Nutrition was probably a larger exit a few years ago from the on the bio side, because I think they were about a billion dollar exit and it was owned by uh, Nova Scotia investors. So am I wrong about Ocean Nutrition? And can you tell our audience a little bit about Verifin? What do they do and why were they so highly valued? Okay, Verifin... Verifin didn't exit. My understanding is that it is still majority owned by Atlantic Canadians. Yes, not an exit. Sorry, the largest investment. Yeah, yeah, the largest investment. Not it was the the largest. It was the largest in what the way the the Canadian private equity and BC and, and private equity association termed it was the largest growth capital deal ever because it was 50% or they didn't give a breakdown, but it was equity and debt. Anyway, massive deal, $515 million. Uh, when we started collecting data, $50 million 
in a year for everybody was a good year. Um, now that went up to about 200 million, including stock market investments. And the stock market is playing a much bigger role in this space than it ever has before. So Virathin last year raised 515 million in capital, massive deal. They have built up a very nice business for, for themselves, developing software that can identify and prevent fraud and money laundering for mid-sized banks in the US. And they're moving up market. They've got more and more larger banks than they used to. And they, they lead the world in, in that, that area. Um, it's difficult to see how they can raise $515 million and not be valued at around a billion dollars. So I think we can claim that we've got uh, an IT unicorn in Atlantic Canada. Huge win for the region, huge, massive, ginormous win for the St. John's Center. And it came as uh, two different St. John's companies, Sequence Bio and Colab Softwares, became the first Atlantic Canadian uh, companies accepted into the Y Combinator uh, Accelerator in Silicon Valley. All kinds of things doing really well in St. John's right now. Um, Ocean Nutrition, I think it was 560 million that they exited for. That probably isn't as big as Q1 Labs. Q1 never uh, never released how much it was, but it was said to be about 600 million. Um, yeah, and Ocean Nutrition probably wouldn't fit your definition of a startup anyway. Yeah, yeah, it would. Sure. Locally, it was then locally owned. They were commercializing technology and they were selling to a global market. Ticks all three boxes. Um, What's interesting about Ocean Nutrition, just bringing it up to the present, is John Risley uh, did very well out of it. Uh, John Risley was a key backer in Conduct, which exited last week. Uh, John Risley, A, invests in local companies. B, nobody has the ear of the 1% in Nova Scotia like John Risley does. So if John Risley is telling people, look, I invested in a small company and I got this much money out of it, it's good It's good for the, the, the ecosystem. I haven't heard that from John Risley, but it makes sense. So, Peter, we'll have you on again in the future to talk about love those that. catalysts, right? Jerry Pond and, and Risley and, and any others you see in the region that are kind of behind the scenes playing that role of, of organizer of funding and so on. It'd be great to have that conversation. I'll pass it back to Matt. Peter, thank you so much for being on the growing pains podcast. We always have so much fun. It's the, been the great. Biggest thank thing you I so learned, much. You're so welcome. The biggest thing I learn every time we do it, we maybe have a problem of underrating ourselves in the sense that I'm always blown away. I always come back a little more positive. Um, Obviously, it's not easy being a young person starting an early stage business, but talking to people like you, it makes me want to stay in it. I mean, this is a, it's a great place to be. It's a great place to live. Thanks for being on the Growing Pains podcast. Thank you. And congrats on the job you're doing, Matt. I think it's fantastic. Likewise. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George. Is engineered by the great Zachary Pelche and is part of the Unsettled Media podcast network.